You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Catherine Cruz here, and this morning we talked with John DeFries, the new executive officer of the Hawaii Tourism Authority. We were looking ahead to next week, October 15th, when we enter a new phase of our economic recovery due to this global pandemic crisis. Visitors to the islands will be able to bypass the 14-day quarantine under a new pre-travel COVID-19 test program. Here's John DeFries. What you've got is you've got all of the different components of tourism, be it airlines, ground transportation, hotels, etc., restaurants, retail. Every one of those components has identified kind of the industry standards that have to be complied with and should be complied with. It'll be on an honor system, and I expect most businesses to exceed what those guidelines are. Uh, Those are posted, by the way, on the Go Hawaii website, and you'd be able to look at that. So you've got those guidelines in place. The real challenge now is to make them operational and make them safe. So at this moment, you've got employees that are being brought back to the hotels in particular that have decided to open on the 15th or are open now, for that matter. And there's going to be a need for extensive training. Uh, The job you left four or five months ago is only partially the same. We now have all of these safety and health guidelines and procedures that were not there back in January of this year. And so sanitation, hygiene, sterilization, the things that we normally associate with clinics and hospitals are now being imposed into each of the touch points that a visitor and a local member of the workforce will come into contact with. And and frankly, we've never been in that kind of a role at this scale before. So we've got a lot to do between now and the 15th, and even after the 15th work on refinements and and perfecting these systems is going to be incumbent on all aspects of our industry. You are anticipating what kind of response from travelers? You know, I've talked uh, in the first two weeks to various markets, including the U.S. We've been talking to Oceania, based in Australia, South Korea, Japan, Canada. And uh, for the moment, China and Europe representation of Hawaii has been suspended. But when, when you talk to those marketing bureaus that are out there on our behalf, they all speak about a pent-up demand to come to Hawaii. And they're, in each of their cases outside the U.S., there's a need to align and get certified their COVID tests that are not automatically approved by the, the U.S. FDA, Food and Drug Administration. So There's some of that going on. It's probably further ahead with tests coming out of Japan. But, you know, anybody that's forecasting tourism arrivals over the next two and a half months after October 15th, all of us are in some way pulling it out of the air. My gut feeling is between October 15th and New Year's Eve, my gut feeling tells me we'll be averaging around 5,000 visitors per day, which is roughly like 17, 18% of where we were a year ago. Of that number, yeah. how much do you think will come from Japan? Well, I think it was Japan's complete choice. Half that number would come from Japan. But I would say conservatively, I would think about 15 to 20% at this stage. And, and you know, people who will be coming to Hawaii at this time will understand that this isn't the bustling retail, restaurant. The activities are are going to feel somewhat connected, right? Because you've got a number of shops that are closed and will remain closed, as well as restaurants. So my sense about the visitor that, that will appear in the next two and a half months is that they're being drawn to something other than just the commercial aspects of it, that And some of that may be intangible. It may just, their sense of being back on on the beach and being able to get back into an environment that makes them feel more whole and healthy. At the same time, you know, the focus has got to be on our local workforce and the local work environment because that needs to be healed in a way that will give the visitors some confidence and trust but more importantly also that our local people feel that everything's being done to make the work environment safe for them as well as for the visitor.
we all saw what happened with SARS and 9-11 that, you know, you can throw all kinds of marketing money uh, in, uh, that way. But until the government says, you know, it's okay to travel and until you have some kind of consumer confidence that, you know, they're not going to come, right? So right. how are you looking to massage that market from Japan? You know, it's um, fortunately we've got among the global marketing bureaus or teams that contracted by HDA, the one Hawaii Tourism Japan, in my opinion, is far more mature and, and maybe as mature as our market with the U.S. So, you know, part of it will have to do with their, the way in which they message. When I got here two and a half weeks ago, on day one, you know, I established um, Malama, the Hawaiian cultural value of Malama, as the organizing principle for our work moving forward this idea of being able to protect and care for one another and um, the way we protect our natural resources and mountains and ocean. Well, inevitably, part of our success is going to be able to malama visitors and in turn educate them on how to malama us and, and set up this circle of reciprocity, which culturally and as a community we're based on. Now, having just said that, what in turn I'm asking of Japan is to explain to me in your language and culture how you say malama and how you experience that and ways in which you experience that. And uh, we're at the, the front end of it, and, and I'm intent on establishing solid cross-cultural foundations with each of these international markets because we're going to need that depth in our relationship to get through the storms that lay ahead. Our relationship cannot just be transactional. And we're going to have to educate each other on ways in which we can transact business, but at the same time, learn more about each other at a deeper cultural level. And and we're doing that right now with Japan. So that's a long-winded answer to your question. I think each one of us is taking small steps to try and better understand what it's going to take Testing is obviously a prerequisite, and we're fortunate that Lieutenant Governor Josh Green has relationships with people in Japan, doctors in Japan, who have worked here in Hawaii in the past, who are intimately involved with uh, the testing on their end. And we're hoping that that will be a solid agreement that will enable Japan to feel confident about that. And, and for us to feel confident that those tests um, comply or exceed with what the FDA would approve. You know, we've been talking to another doctor, Dr. Jim Barahal, since the beginning of the year, because obviously he's got to make some decisions about the Honolulu Marathon. Have you folks been in contact? spoke with him last week, myself and Patty Herman, our VP of Marketing at HDA. We understand kind of what, what he's up against and, and what we're all up against, actually. So... We'll continue to stay connected with him, try and understand how we can support this. I think he, we're fortunate because not only do we have a race director, we have a doctor who is at the center of the local testing that's available. So he can see it kind of comprehensively. So we just had our first meeting. We've agreed to stay with him and remain updated. Immediately, HDA is in a budget crunch. As you can imagine, our source of funding comes from the tourism transient tax, which the coffers of which are empty at the moment. And uh, HDA was advised back in April that we needed to manage ourselves with the cash on hand. And, and so, you know, we're not able to respond to all of the financial requests and needs that are coming our way. But we'll try our best to, to do what it is we can with the limited resources we have. What can you tell us and, about the Canadian market? Because it's around that time where the snowbirds start heading our way. And I, I imagine they're not too eager to go to Florida because the numbers have spiked over there. This might be a safer destination. So when I spoke to them early last week, the, the um, group that is representing us in Canada, and there are some border governmental issues that are being resolved. There's uh, airline routes that are obviously being kind of rescheduled. And, and so they're in the midst of that, quite eager for the reasons uh, you talked about, the snowbirds. And a number of them own 
you know, units, condominiums or hotel condos here who are anxious to get back. If you take a look at what happened over the last, what, 75 days or so, when I applied for the CEO position at HDA, Hawaii was among the top-ranked states relative to COVID statistics. By the time I get to the final interview, August 27th, uh, we are among the worst COVID statistics. And it had little or nothing to do with um, the visitor or tourists. And, um, and as a local community, we may have lost our focus, got complacent, um, underestimated what would happen when we gather and interact. So part of our story has got to be how we make a commitment statewide to flatten the COVID curve permanently. At one point, there'll be a vaccine. Could be nine months, could be 12 months from now. That will help us sustain that flattened curve. But between now and then, there are things we can do and have to do. Because unless we commit and design a plan to flatten the curve permanently, then industries such as tourism cannot get underneath and begin the reopening at scale. And are we going to have the same kind of testing issues with Japan, with Canada? We didn't cover that the testing in in detail with Canada at, at last week's meeting, but it stands to reason that all of the international testing going to have to arrive. Two things. There, there's an emergency use authorization that the FDA has put in place, or I should say the um, Department of Health at the federal level has put in place that will allow for these kinds of uh, authorizations to take place. And also, they're going to have to have an agreement with the Department of Health locally. Basically, we don't have much time, but a lot has to be done in this in this next 10 Absolutely. days. Absolutely. I imagine there's going to be hiccups. It's not a perfect system. This is the general plan. And then we'll, I guess, see how it rolls out. But it could be it could be a little bumpy at the beginning. You know, this is like going through a storm. And, and we need to arrive at a mindset, and what I refer to as the Malama mindset, because we cannot just be complacent and go through the storms that lay ahead. It's going to be a, a, a rough ride, but we have the capacity to do it as a community, and I look forward to working through it. That was John DeFries, newly named head of the Hawaii Tourism Authority, as we count down to a new phase of economic recovery. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now for your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we're looking at one of the bird species in Hawaii that have evolved curved beaks that are ideal for extracting nectar from flowers. The bird we're thinking of is a small red bird with black wings and tail and orange legs. This member of the honeycreeper species has a pronounced salmon-colored bill that is unusually long and curves downward and is described in the Hawaiian Encyclopedia as among the most spectacular of all the honeycreeper bills. Researchers believe its long downward curving bill came about as an adaptation to the shape of certain native nobilias. The flowers are long and tubular shaped. Today we're looking for this particular honeycreeper's Hawaiian name. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right.
Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app at locationshawaii.com. Waikiki offices of the Visitor Aloha Society of Hawaii have been shuttered since the early part of 2020, but that doesn't mean it hasn't been working to help travelers. We talked to Jessica Lani-Rich, longtime VASH executive director, about its mission. Not every state has a VASH, but what some of the states do have, and I know because I am a board member, I've been on the national board of directors for Travelers Aid International for over 10 years now in Washington, D.C., I go to D.C. a couple times a year, is that there is a traveler's aid at most of the major airports, and they give information about where you can stay, where you can uh, get inexpensive travel, things of that nature. And they do help uh, people at the airport, for example. They work with Greyhound uh, if they do need to get like an inexpensive ticket and sometimes even a free ticket to where they need to go. But that's interesting that it just varies across the country, I guess, depending on the state's dependence on tourism. Yeah, absolutely. For example, in Chicago, they have guests throughout the airport and they help, you know, the, the large number of tourists that do travel. They help them with different issues such as, you know, I missed my flight or I lost a wallet. And they are there and they are extremely uh, helpful. And, of course, when flights are canceled, the Chicago Traveler's Aid also helps there as well. And they also refer some of the homeless people who do, get it, who do travel to homeless shelters. So Traveler's Aid International is uh, widespread. And I'm proud to be a member of the National Board and represent the Pacific region when it comes to problems and solutions of the traveling public. Do we do more to aid travelers in most places? Yeah, Hawaii is is pretty uh, fortunate in, in the sense that many of the visitors who come here uh, are Visitor Aloha Society of Hawaii, also known as VASH. We do also social services such as We will, not during COVID, but before COVID, for example, if someone got involved in an auto accident, we would go to the hospital. Or if there was a drowning and uh, there was, let's say, someone on their honeymoon, they're, they're, they're all alone and they're scared, we would go to the hospital. If somebody from Japan, for example, lost their passport while they're on the beach, we would give them free transportation and a translator uh, to get them to the Japanese consulate. So our services are widespread. The majority of our services are all free. However, we do not pay for medical problems. We don't give health insurance or pay for that. We're asked that question all the time. With the October 15th just around the corner, how are you, I guess, preparing for you know the expected uh bump in travelers coming through here? That's a really good question. And what we're doing is, first of all, our Waikiki Shopping Plaza office has been closed during COVID. We've been sheltering in place and working at home as the mayor and the state has ordered uh, you know, people to work from home. So we're going to be reopening our, our Waikiki office since, as you know, the majority of hotels are in Waikiki. We're also going to be reactivating our VASH volunteers to come back and help us with the expected amount of visitors that we're going to have. Um, Many of our volunteers speak several languages, whether it be Japanese, Korean, French, German. And then the third thing we're going to be doing is making sure that our staff and our volunteers, that we're all giving the same message to our visitors, that before you come to Hawaii, you better get pre-tested and have a negative COVID test within 72 hours. And also be sure to register with the new Safe Travels program, which of course, as you know, Catherine, is mandatory for uh, all travelers coming here. Just reflecting back on the last six months, your organization has really stepped up and 
helped in a number of ways. We had a situation where we had two cult-like organizations, I guess, try to uh, come in and and, uh, there were some issues. So can you talk about your involvement with those groups? Yes, and there were definitely some issues. Yeah, back in June, as a matter of fact, around June 21st, there were 21 cult members called the Carbon Nation and they were on the Big Island. And they made the mistake of showing off their Hawaiian vacation and totally being disrespectful to our quarantine laws. And the fact that they were posting their Hawaiian vacation on Facebook and on Instagram, they were caught, uh, they were arrested, they were fined, and they also, uh, many of them spent time in jail. We were called in and worked very closely with uh, Mitch Roth, and we also worked closely with police, law enforcement officials, It was a lot of logistics that go on and behind the scenes when you're dealing with 21 cult members, such as, you know, letting airline officials know that you're going to have 21 cult members on your airplane. We split them up in two two groups. We have the leaders on one plane and the other members on another. You're right. Back in June, we did have that that cult on the Big Island. Did Mitch Roth help in his capacity as a prosecutor? Yes, he did. He was hands-on. He he contacted us. He asked us, can you help us in sending the 21 cult members home? And there were some changes because in the duration behind the scenes in this story, some of the cult members told law enforcement, look, we came here to live. We didn't come here to go back home. So they were uncertain uh, whether or not they actually wanted to go back. So they had a choice. Either stay in jail for 14 days, pay the $5,000 fine, or get on the plane and go back home. So they landed up uh, going back home. So there were some issues with this. And Mitch Roth did a great job in pretty much managing and, uh, and working with law enforcement officials in our agency, all of us as a team pretty much getting these 21 cult members back home. And you had a second group that I think started on Kauai and had some issues yes. where the mayor had to step in uh, to, yes. to help manage the peace yeah. there. Yeah, what are the odds of that? Two cults coming to Hawaii during COVID-19, and that, uh, it was approximately around September 8th when the cult from Colorado, they were called Love Has Won. They rented a house on Kauai. There were 14 members of the, that particular cult. Now, this group, they were not quarantine violators. It's just that their lifestyle was not compatible with the local community. And so there were protests outside the home, and we got a call uh, from Maui because the three cult leaders left and thought, okay, they don't like us here in Kauai. We're going to relocate to Maui. So they went to Maui, and they were caught at the airport because they were renting an unauthorized uh, rental. And then we worked closely with law enforcement to get all 14 members back to Colorado. I do want to share with you, Catherine, about one positive story that has come out of this whole COVID-19 situation. It's one of the cases that I had on the 4th of July. There was a homeless veteran who was here on Oahu. His mother had not seen him in five years. And he got sick, and the hospital notified the mom because she was the next to Ken. And so we worked with her in staying at the airport and they reunited, the mom reunited with the homeless vet after five years and took him back home to Texas so he would no longer be homeless. And that was a really very heartwarming story, and it was something positive, uh, a case that was positive that came out of this whole COVID-19. Over the years that you've been with VASH, I mean, there's so many examples like this when you are able to connect people and either get someone out of harm's way or just get them in a better space. That's one example. And another example during COVID is, of course, you're aware that American Samoa, their borders are closed and have been closed for six months. And we assisted for the first five months, along with the wonderful help of the Salvation Army, a father and daughter from American Samoa, they were en route at Honolulu Airport to go back to American Samoa, and they were told, no, the border is closed because of COVID-19. 
They did not have enough money. They didn't have a place to stay. Bash helped them out for five months. The Salvation Army was absolutely awesome. They helped out as well. And we also partnered with the Red Cross. And this was a case where all three nonprofit agencies working together, we were able to help the Samoan father and daughter. They're still here. I was able to work with the Samoan church, and so they're now living with a Samoan pastor until hopefully American Samoa opens up soon. And as you probably know, there are no COVID cases in American Samoa. As we prepare to get into the next phase of the reopening of Hawaii on October 15th, I want to just say to your listeners, if there's anybody out there who would like to volunteer for VASH, who feels like you want to help our visitors, there are going to be visitors who do need help. And if you hear this and you feel like you want to help, please give us a call or go to our website, visitorlohasocietyofhawaii.org. So then are you the umbrella group for the other islands or does each island have their own? I forget how that works. Good question. Each island has their own VASH. Maui, for example, is the Maui Visitors Bureau. Mm -hmm. Also in Kauai, it's run through Kauai Visitors Bureau. And then the big island on the Kona side and Hilo side, they're same agency but in different areas. And I'm in charge of the island of Oahu for VASH. Whenever there is a visitor in distress or any type of crisis like the airplane crash here, you know, that took place at Mokalaia, anything that happens to a visitor, we're there to help. Sometimes I like to think we're like your best friend who shows up when you need a friend the most. And that was Jessica Lani Rich, Executive Director of the Visitor Aloha Society of Hawaii, talking about preparing for October 15th when a pre-testing program is expected to draw thousands of tourists back to the islands. Support for HPR comes from Waimea Valley with a commitment to protect and restore its Ahu Pua'a, working toward conservation of its natural and cultural resources. More about its dedication garden and other giving programs at waimeavalley.net slash donate. COVID has changed everything, and with over a million deaths worldwide, there are plenty of stories about coronavirus and what might come next if we have a second wave. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with an infectious disease expert about what the experiences on the mainland and beyond can teach us right here at home. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Zippy's Restaurants, offering a limited takeout menu. Online ordering at zippies.com or by downloading the app. Honolulu Civil Beat has a follow-up story today about the recent federal indictment of a defense contractor. The company is Nabatech, which interestingly just changed its name. Reporter Nick Gruby joins us today. Good morning, Nick, or good afternoon, I should say. <laughs> Hi, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, I always forget uh, the time difference because you're there in D.C. Uh, so, yeah, tell us about this story. You have an interesting uh, dimension to this uh, indictment. Yeah, well, this this is a story about Martin Kao. He's the uh, CEO of Navitech LLC, which recently changed its name to Martin Defense Group. Now, Navitech is a Hawaii-based defense contractor, and last week the U.S. Justice Department uh, charged Kao with several counts of bank fraud and money laundering for allegedly bilking the Paycheck Protection Program of about $12.8 million dollars. Um, basically by falsifying, the, the, the Fed say, by falsifying loan documents and double-dipping into CARES Act funding, which was supposed to help with uh, small businesses with uh, 
coronavirus relief aid uh, at a time when a lot of businesses were shuttering their doors. Now, the piece that I wrote today focuses on an email that uh, Martin Kao sent to his employees before getting these loans, in which he basically said that he didn't to indicate that he didn't really take the pandemic all that seriously but one of the things that he did is he assured his employees that uh, they would be keeping their jobs um, and that despite the pandemic he was planning to expand the business um, of course one of his more curious claims in his email to his employees was uh, that he had a blood type that was immune to covid uh, which of course we know is not true yeah that, that's pretty puzzling uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess the 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 language in in that email, uh, as you outlined in your story, is really kind of revealing. It is in a lot of ways. I mean, it, it it's equal parts bravado um, and also stern in the sense that he did issue his employees a warning, particularly when it comes to working from home, which a lot of uh, people are being forced to do now. He said to his workers that they shouldn't take advantage of this privilege, and if for some reason they were caught doing something he didn't like, that there would be, quote, draconian consequences. But really what I think that this story highlights is the fact that Navitech seemed to be doing much better than a lot of other businesses that did have to shut down during the pandemic. Uh, for example, shortly before uh, Martin Kale was arrested and charged, uh, his company had issued a press release announcing its name change and said that Navitech had received more than $20 million in new contracts since this spring. Now, this, of course, raises a lot of questions about whether uh, KL and Navitech even needed the PPP money in the first place to help keep its employees on the payroll. And, and I think we do have to remember here that there were uh, more than 25,000 businesses in Hawaii that received this money uh, through this small business loan program, and that Navitech was one of just about 20 uh, that had received um, loans uh, ranging anywhere from 5 to $10 million. Now, in your original story, you talked about how he had, um, according to the indictment, you know, put like $2 million of that money into a personal account, um, which is just, you know, really interesting, uh, you know, if, if that's what he did. At the same time, he's telling his employees, you know, I don't want to see any slackers out there. Um, I'm very curious. That's right. I mean, the the, the federal complaint that uh, was filed uh, did note that they were able to trace some of these these federal loans uh, and were able to follow that money into his personal bank account. Now, of course, when uh, we had an opportunity to ask U.S. Attorney Kenji Price about how he spent that money. They said that that was part of an ongoing investigation. Um, you know, and also what I thought was quite interesting about the arrest was the fact that uh, Martin Kao had uh, sort of indicated to various lenders, including Central Pacific Bank, that he was connected with various lawmakers in Washington, um, senators and members of Congress, who, of course, were not identified by name in the complaint. Those names were redacted. But I think what's important to note about that is uh, Martin Kao is a big-time political donor. He his family and his employees have given hundreds of thousands of dollars to political candidates over the years, uh, including to U.S. Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, um, and, and as well as to U.S. Senator Susan Collins, the Republican from Maine. Um, more recently, uh, of course, uh, Senator Collins has recently boasted of helping Navitech um, get the dollars in federal contracts, uh, something that, of course, she is coming under a bit of scrutiny for out there as she faces a stiff challenge uh, for re-election. And when you reached out to the company, what did they say? Oh, they haven't said anything. In fact, they uh, issued me a one-sentence response uh, through a paid spokesperson that said uh, the company has nothing more to say at this time. Okay. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we understand that he's out on bail uh, and looking to prepare his fight against uh, this big deal case uh, for the U.S. Attorney's Office. Thank you so much, Nick. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. All right. Look forward to other stories. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks.
We have been uh, talking to reporter Nick Ruby with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read this story and previous stories, head to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, working to protect and manage Oahu's drinking water resources for life. Learn seven ways to save water at boardofwatersupply.com. Kamala Harris says Americans have been lied to. The case against Donald Trump and Mike Pence is open and shut. The vice president is eager to dispute that. My message to the Democrat candidate for vice president, congratulations. I'll see you in Salt Lake City. Join us Wednesday night for NPR's special live coverage of the 2020 vice presidential debate from NPR News. Beginning Wednesday afternoon at 3 here on HBR One. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now check in with astronomer Christopher Phillips and HPR's Dave Lawrence about a strange discovery of a rogue planet floating freely among the stars. Here's your Monday stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny and very troubled planet. And as usual, we are fortunate to have the expertise of astronomer Christopher Phillips to guide us through it all. And we've got him on the line. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week's stargazers, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn can still be seen in the southern sky after sunset. And Venus is also still visible in the morning before dawn. The moon this week is beginning to wane, and so conditions for stargazing will improve drastically towards week's end. That is, of course, if we don't have an encounter with the rogue planet you're apparently going to be telling us about today. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So a team for the Optical Gravitational Lensing Experiment, or OGLE for short, have collaborated with Korean astronomers to search the depths of space for objects that are too distant and too dim to be detected using optical telescopes. And they have just made a remarkable discovery. They found, as you said, a rogue planet about the same mass as the Earth drifting freely between the stars at an undetermined distance. And so fill us in, what is this exactly? Well, most of us are familiar with the concept of a solar system like our own, where you have a central star or stars that are orbited by a family of planets. Rogue planets have no family. They do not orbit a star, and they wander the dark between the stars all by themselves. I'm getting the feeling it's probably real cold on one of those places. Exactly. It's almost certainly freezing because there's no star to keep it warm. And so the chances for life on a rogue planet are pretty much zero. However, we don't know very much about the internal heating mechanisms of these planets. So it's possible, however unlikely, that they may have warm interiors. And that makes them a lot more interesting. Plus, they could have a bunch of resources there that mankind could exploit. We'd have to go pretty far to get it. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not worth the trip. (laughs) And so how did they find it if it was so far away and so small and dark? Well, the team used a technique called gravitational microlensing. And this technique involves looking at the change in brightness of background stars as a massive object passes in front of them. As it does, it causes a small distortion in the light and gives away the presence of whatever is passing in front. It's incredibly challenging, but also a very effective technique for spotting invisible things in the night sky. Do we have a catchy name for this one yet? It's Ogle 2016 BLG 1928. And what about more of these things waiting for us to discover? They are out there. So far, we have discovered five rogue planets, including this one, and you can bet that we will find many, many more as time goes on. And we know we'll hear about them here on Stargazer with you, Christopher Phillips. Thank you so much. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at haleakalaranch.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we told you about a native honeycreeper with a distinctive curved beak. 
which allowed the creatures to feed off the nectar of the long tubular-shaped flowers of native nobilias. Now, these birds live on the nectar of the nobilia, and the lobelia depends on them as well. The flower provides food for the bird, and the bird pollinates the flower, carrying the pollen on its forehead. It's an example of coevolution, a symbiotic relationship to the benefit of two unrelated species. Scientists believe lobelia flowers evolved their long curved corolla at the same time that this particular honeycreeper evolved its long and curved bill to fit into this particular long-throated flower where the life-giving nectar lives. Today we ask you to give us the name, the Hawaiian name of this honeycreeper, Lobelias are scarce these days, and the honeycreeper, known by its Hawaiian name, Eevee, is under pressure to adapt accordingly. They now feed primarily on the nectar from the blossoms of the Ohia Lehua. And congratulations to our winner. Heron is a nine-year-old from Haiku, Maui. He said that he's seen Eevee up on Haleakala. I'm jealous. Congratulations to you. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The State Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism, along with nonprofit organizations and the private sector, launched a job training program last month supported by $10 million in federal CARES Act money. The program can provide local businesses with up to 650 workers. Two nonprofits, Kupu and the Economic Development Alliance of Hawaii, are running the programs, and they match workers displaced by the COVID crisis with companies in emerging industries, such as conservation and renewable energy. An architect of the initiative is Omar Sultan, managing partner of local venture capital firm Sultan Ventures. He spoke with the Conversations producer, Jason Ubai, about the program. When the COVID pandemic first hit Hawaii and, you know, many, many individuals with the Hawaii Business Roundtable and various task forces started getting together to see, you know, how we can address the local issues um, and help our, our local communities. And so um, through, through the, all of those various conversations, you know, one of the things that started to emerge, especially when the CARES Act funding uh, started to flow into the state, was is there a way to use these monies that would have sort of this multiplying impact and multiplying effect? Meaning, can we do it to address short-term as well as potentially set up a solution or solutions for long-term uh, recovery, right? So really what kind of just to, to put a, a head on that um, is, is there a way for us to get our displaced workers back into jobs, earning wages, and getting uh, skilled in, in the future sectors of the economy that might be more resilient than the, than the ones of the past. And so what happened was, you know, Rich Wacker from American Savings Bank, who heads up the, the innovation task force under the change framework, um, I'm part of that task force as well. You know, he and I and many others were having several conversations. And then finally we thought, okay, there's, there's this CARES Act funding let's put together a program that sort of outlines what we're all talking about. So I architected this program that essentially takes a displaced workers from the tourism, hospitality, service industry sectors and cross-skills them, upskills them, exposes, exposes them to um, sectors that are emerging and uh, that are based in innovation, right? So... How can we provide them with future growth opportunities? How can we provide them with a pathway for um, better career choices, if you will? Um, and I think that, you know, ultimately dovetails very nicely with the recommendations that are in the talent roadmap, um, which, again, looks at both short-term and long-term items for building a more resilient economy here in Hawaii. One of the things that was really important was how do we do this in a way that's not recreating the wheel because there's a lot of great initiatives here in Hawaii and there's a lot of great organizations here in Hawaii that are doing amazing work in this particular focus area. So how can we align it with those initiatives so that, again, we multiply the impact of the work that has already been done 
and will need to continue to be done. And so we sought to align it with the Aloha Plus Challenge goals, which, as you know, the ledge and the governor support very much. And so we looked at the sectors that also overlap with the sectors that are outlined in the Aloha Plus dashboard and the Hawaii Green Growth Sport. So looking at synergy among what's already out there, but also trying to get people back into work as soon as possible, but in new places that are less susceptible to, you know, a complete drop in tourism. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, should a, you know, we're still experiencing the issues with this pandemic, right? So how do we become more resilient? How do we become, you know, as a, as a local economy and a local workforce, how do we become um, more prepared in the future, less reliant on visitors arriving, more, you know, self-sustaining, and of course, more prosperous, right? And so the state-funded program, which is being run through uh, DIDA, Department of Business, Economic Development, and Tourism, has two tracks that have come under it, right? So one is a conservation track that is being run by Kupu, and one, and the other one is uh, Emerging Industry Innovation Track, which is the Aloha Connects Innovation, and it's being led by the Economic Development Alliance of Hawaii, or EDA for short. And for those I guess that are not familiar with EDA. EDA is a nonprofit organization that is comprised of the various economic development boards. And it was, um, it was important that an economic development organization such as EDA, which has representation across all the islands and all of the counties, sort of take the, take the lead on, on, on rolling out this initiative. And so we're really fortunate to have those two organizations that are doing the dual tracks under this one program under DIVA. And there's uh, $10 million in CARES funding uh, to support these two tracks. That's right. So after, you know, I architected the program and and Rich and I helped socialize it and many others, you know, added their hands and thoughts and brain power to continue to evolve the original framework. The ledge actually approved up to $36 million for the program. Uh, I think part of what ended up happening was some of the CARES funding, it looks like, might be used to cover state deficits. And so um, amongst several other line items, I think it was like three or $400 million worth, you know, the governor carved back some of that funding. It's just one, ensure that, you know, there is an actual need and demand and that we, um, that none of the, none of the programs are, are left with unspent monies because those monies, you know, are federal dollars. And if they're unspent by the end of the year, they have to be returned to the federal government, and I think we all know how badly, you know, the state of Hawaii needs those funds. So that would be that would be a terrible thing or a terrible outcome, I should say. Um, so the governor scaled it back to 10 million specifically for this innovation workforce uh, development program, and um, has the complete like purview and authority to uh, add additional dollars to it should there be need. And of course, I think we all know again that there is a, a lot of need. You know, we have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of folks that are currently, you know, looking for jobs out of work. And this program, as I said, allows people to earn a living wage while learning on the job, right? At the end of the day, this program is placing displaced workers with companies where those companies are taking the time to help train them and give them exposure to new job opportunities and to new sectors that perhaps they they weren't aware of before. And it's doing it in a very equitable um, way where everyone has the same, or we strive to provide everyone with the same equity and access to these opportunities. What kind of jobs are these? Can you give us some examples? So when you think about some of the sectors that are in the emerging industries or, or perhaps might be more resilient, you know, we think about renewable energy, waste reduction, um, different types of agricultural cultural, um, technologies and needs, sustainable agriculture, of course, you know, food production, local food production, entrepreneurship, STEM fields, you know, things that, again, align with the Aloha Plus Challenge sectors and, um, you know, the sectors that are outlined in the change framework as well. The funding for this is, uh, you know, available until December 15th. Like I said, if any unspent monies, uh, you know, so that we don't have to return it to the federal government. It's giving the state an opportunity to reclaim any unspent monies and then allocate it to a different uh, sort of department or pot uh, so that it can remain here in the state. Where can people find out more information about this? 
For um, for the Innovation and Emerging Industry track, uh, you can go to EDA, that's E-D-A-H-A-W-A-I-I.org, EDAHawaii.org, um, to learn more about the Aloha Connects Innovation Program. And then, of course, for the Kupu Aina uh, track, you can go to uh, Kupu's website, kupuhawaii.org. I think it's important to note that in order for... In order to transform Hawaii, like we've all been talking about and we're all desiring, you know, and if we look at sort of what we want Hawaii 2.0, as some have been calling it, to look to, to materialize into or what reality we want to see for ourselves as a, as a local community and as a state, uh, I think it's important to realize that it takes a lot of effort and a lot of aligned effort, right? And so for this one in particular, we have governments, we have private, we have nonprofit sectors all coming together uh, to work together to build back better together. And I, I think that's a, a critical and um, awesome component of this. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that, um, you know, while this program with the $10 million will be able to serve roughly 650 participants, we know that there's thousands and thousands more that we will not be able to serve because of the, the limited funding. For one, it would be, that's why I think it's very important, if possible, to release more funding for this program. And two, while we're, why we're also looking at other additional training opportunities, right? And I think um, it takes mindset and skill set in order for us to uh, to move forward. And so under OEDB, specifically under Pono Shim, there's a higher skills academy training that is being provided for free. HTDC, with their partnership with Coursera, is providing over 3,800 courses through Coursera, Coursera's platform for free through the end of the year. And then of course, um, OEDB also partnered with Microsoft. And so there's Microsoft training opportunities available um, that you know teach how to, how to build your resume, how to do your LinkedIn profile, how to use any of the Microsoft 365 Office suite products. Um, and all of these trainings are available whether individuals are part of this program or not. So anyone interested can apply and can join these trainings for free. Uh, and so if there are more companies out there that are able and willing to provide training to our, our displaced workers, I think that would be a fantastic opportunity for them. That was Omar Sultan, managing partner at Sultan Ventures, discussing a new job training program. Well, that does it for us today. Tomorrow, we plan to chat with Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Aloha.